Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Jack Arnold, who died at the age of 75 in 1992, was the 1950s master of the science fiction film. Among the movies he directed were It Came From Outer Space, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, Tarantula, and The Incredible Shrinking Man. The Probabilities crew, Richard A. Lupoff, Lawrence Davidson, and me, received a small stipend from a science fiction convention and flew to Los Angeles to interview Jack Arnold in his office at Universal Studios. The interview was undated, but was recorded in around 1980, give or take a year. With no Wikipedia or IMDb to guide us, we worked with what we knew. We thought Arnold was mostly retired and had been given his office due to the good graces of Steven Spielberg, but in fact he was still hard at work, mostly directing television shows, miniseries, and TV movies. His final credits were episodes of The Love Boat in the mid-1980s, after our interview. Jack Arnold's memory was fuzzy on when films were released. IMDb lists it came from outer space along with two film noirs in 1953, Creature from the Black Lagoon in 1954, and Revenge of the Creature in 1955. The first Western, The Man from Bitter Ridge, along with Tarantula and his work on This Island Earth, also came from 1955. The rest of the Westerns, along with The Incredible Shrinking Man and the Peter Sellers classic, The Mouse That Roared, came between 1956 and 1959. After that, he directed a couple more A pictures, but his primary work moved to television, and from then until his retirement in 1984, he was constantly working on projects for the small screen, interspersed with the occasional film. At the end of the interview, he discusses in depth a remake of Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, complete with storyboards. That project never did get off the ground, though it's possible later versions use some of Jack Arnold's pre-planning. You're best known at this point, at least for your science fiction films, and I want to start by asking you whether you had an interest in science fiction before that or whether that just came to you as an assignment, the first one, which was, I believe, it came from out of space. Well, it's a combination of both. I was brought up in New York City. I started out as an actor, but as a kid going to school, I was an avid reader of fantasy tales and all those science fiction magazines, those lurid covers and, and those wonderful stories. I was kind of weaned on those kind of stories, but I, I never thought I was going to make any. As a matter of fact, I didn't think I was going to make any pictures because I started out as an actor and became a director for films in a very odd and different way. Would you pop one or two of your acting credits at us? Well, 
three men on a horse. I worked for George Abbott, and I worked for Kaufman and Hart, and the man who came to dinner. I graduated from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in 1935, and my first play was an anti-Nazi play with Guy Bates Post, who has long since died. Then I went to work for George Abbott in uh, Three Men on a Horse. I went and staged the English Company after playing for two years in the, in the, on the Broadway mm -hmm. Company and stayed in England for a year doing uh, Three Men on a Horse. And while I was playing in Three Men on a Horse in England, I did two Edgar Wallace pictures as an actor. And what were those? You call the titles? Oh, God, no. <laughs> That's 1937, you know. I don't remember the titles of them. I remember the, uh, the star, Constance Cummings. Constance Cummings was a lovely, lovely woman. Uh, I came back to New York, and then I, I did another uh, for George Abbott. I think it was George Abbott. Oh, I did The American Way before uh, Kaufman and Hart, and I just had the name of the play in my, on the tip of my tongue. In 1941, my sister Eileen. On Broadway? On Broadway, yes. All of these were on Broadway. Yeah. I enlisted uh, in the Air Force. Uh, having my hobby at that time was twofold. I had two hobbies. One was flying, and I had a private pilot's license. And the other was that when I wasn't working in the theater, I had built a blimp around a Model K Kodak 16-millimeter camera, mm -hmm. which was like a box. And I put foam rubber in, in it to deaden the noise, and I put external controls so I can control it from outside the blimp. And I used to go to the theater when I wasn't working, whatever show was playing. And uh, I would photograph it in a succession of three performances so I could get long shot, medium shot, mm -hmm. and close with the telephoto. And I would put together highlights from the play silently. The whole thing would probably cost me about $75. So I'd take a projector backstage with me, and I would show it to the actors, and there wasn't an actor that could resist <laughs> buying a film, showing him out, <laughs> even silently. So I charged him $350 for it. So I had a thriving business going until the unions found me. So I enlisted in uh, the Air Force, and I was accepted as a after a number of tests and physicals, as a cadet. And then, there, then I was told to go home, and I would be called. And they told me what my class was. I was home, out of a job. I'd given the cassette me a party for the hero to go. I couldn't show my face in Walgreens anymore, because that's where the actors used to hang out, down in yeah. Walgreens. After a month went by, I got so uneasy, you know, I was afraid, you know, that... Uh, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't get a job because I didn't know when I would be called. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine caught me on Broadway walking down the street kind of dis despondent. And uh, he says, what's, what's going on with you and why aren't you flying? I thought you were in the aircraft. So I told him the story. I had meanwhile gone down to Church Street, which was the headquarters of the Army, and asked when my class would be called. And they said, you won't be called for another three months at least because we don't have the planes and we mm -hmm. don't have the, the airfields ready and we won't call you for another three or, three or four months. So I said, thanks very much. A big heap. What am I supposed to do? He said, we'll see you in three or four months. So uh, that's where I met my friend, who's another director, 
who turned out to be another director. He was an actor then and a very good director now, Joe Pebney. Joe said, well, why don't you go to Astoria? They're looking for cameramen. You know, they're looking for civilians because Astoria was the home now of the Signal Corps, the big mm -hmm. studio now at Astoria. I'll bring you upstairs to a friend of mine, 1600 Broadway. And uh, there was a guy who rented movie equipment. And his son, I knew. And they took me in a room. And there was a Mitchell camera in its case. And I spent about three hours unpacking it, loading it, putting dummy film in it, finding out which lenses were what. And I kept doing that until I could do it very quickly. Then I went to Astoria, and there was some lieutenant from Hollywood who was head of the camera department. I said, uh, I'm a cameraman. He says, all right. See that box? Unpack it and load it. And, well, I had just finished four hours of it, and I did it like that. They gave me a uh, civil service rating as a cameraman. And I told him what my draft status was and that I wouldn't be called for at least four months, three four months. But they were so desperate for people that they took me anyway. So the next day I reported for work and there was orders cut out for me to travel to York, Pennsylvania. And I said, why am I, why am I going to York, Pennsylvania? He said, well, you're going to be Robert Flaherty's assistant cameraman. I said, who? He said, Robert Flaherty. That's like telling me I was going to assist God because he was the greatest documentary filmmaker, I think, of all time. Right. Man of Iran. The Nook of the North, Louisiana story. I went to York, Pennsylvania, and I said, I'm not going to fake this out. I, you know, I've got to tell him. So I went to find out where his hotel was, and I just went and knocked on the door, and this huge giant of a man, shock of gray hair with an aquiline nose and piercing blue eyes and a voice to match, who was Flaherty. He was a beautiful-looking man. And I said, Mr. Flaherty? I'm Jack Arnold, and I'm I'm your new assistant cameraman. He says, well, that's fine. Congratulations. We'll see you at the, on the set. I said, no, no, no I, I got a story to tell you. He says, you do? I says, yes, sir. So I went in and told him the story. And I told him how much I knew, which was practically nothing. He laughed, and he said, look, it's not black magic. Just tape everything, keep it in focus. I'll keep my eye on you, and you'll be fine. Well, he kind of took me under his wing, and he treated me like a son. I couldn't have paid for a course in cinematography, no matter how much course, or how long. Sure. Yeah. Flaherty not only trusted me, but he taught me so much. And then and one day he came up to me and says, I, the York Fair is on now, and I want a sequence in the York Fair. The picture was about a dramatic story of someone using his own lathes and things in the garage to do subcontracting work for the f factories nearby who were doing war work. They would make little parts. Yes. And this was to encourage people to do that. So, But he wanted a, a sequence on the York Fair. So I, he gave me an IMO, and IMO is a handheld camera made by Bell & Howell, holds 50 feet of 35-millimeter film. It's got a full complement of lenses. And it was primarily the combat camera that all the combat cameramen used. It had been used here in Hollywood uh, up to the 50s. Well, how long will 50 feet run? 30 seconds of film. So every, I would be loading <laughs> mo most of the time, you know. 
that part of the country is Amish country. It's where they wear those round hats and the black coats. They don't shave. They don't have buttons. And uh, they have horse and buggies. They don't use thing. And they paint the barn doors and the windows blue when they have a marriageable daughter. And uh, they're fascinating people. And I saw a family of them standing some distance away from the fair. This was too frivolous for them, I suppose. They had a little four-year-old girl who was the cutest thing I'd ever seen with a little bonnet and the, and, and the dress, just like her mother. And I used my long focal lens and got all kinds of shots of her, close-ups of her face, and all positions I could. And then I went and photographed the fair with the widest-angle lens I had, as if it were the kid's point of view. And then I brought the film back. We had it developed. And when the film was developed, we ran it. And then he said, come with me. Mr. Fryer, you did. And he brought me into a room, and it's the first time I ever saw a moviola. I watched him, and he says, let me cut a sequence. He liked what I shot, and he liked the idea. I watched him in amazement putting this film together because I shot about 3,000 feet of film. You can imagine how many times I had to change. He put together about a five or four minute little sequence, maybe less than that. But it was brilliant, mm -hmm. what he did with the film, so that I would go into the cutting room with him on the film we were making at the time. And that's where I learned about filmmaking. The four months lasted almost eight months. And at the eighth month, I was being called for my class. Meanwhile, Flaherty was trying to get me out of the uh, Air Training Command to be transferred to the Signal Corps so he could request me. But they wouldn't let anybody out of the Air Training Command because there was such a shortage of pilots and navigators. Even... Moss Hart, who was doing the Air Force show, put in a request for me. No dice. I had to get washed out, but I had to go through the program. Well, I got into the program, and uh, I didn't wash out. I became a pilot. I was sent to England, and I, I flew B-17s in the 8th Air Force. When I got back and got discharged, I got a call from Freddie March, who I had played with in, I think, the American way, Kaufman and Hart. And he wanted to know if I'd like to be in Belfordano. So I was cast in Belfordano with Freddie March and Florence Eldridge and a lot of good people. It was a big hit. While I was playing in Belfordano, Flaherty had recommended me to Louis de Rochemont, who was making documentary films. Whenever I wasn't doing a matinee, I would work for Louis de Rochemont and make some documentaries, direct mm -hmm. some documentaries for him. The Jewish Consumptive League, which turned into the City of Hope, wanted a fundraising film through some people I knew. The guy who owned WMCA suggested that I would know who, who could make it, and I was going to suggest Louis de Rochemont. Mm -hmm. Except that night, my buddy, Lee Goodman, who was a pilot in my squadron and who flew wings with me, who had come from a Texas Kearney family, and he was an excellent three-card Monte dealer. It's a wonder anyone came back with any money. <laughs> and he uh, came into my dressing room one night at the theater, and he took off a money belt. I don't know how much money he had, but a lot of it was mine. He said, let's go in business together, Buck. He used to call me Buck. So I says, okay, we'll make I told him the story. I says, we'll make the film. We'll form a company. 
So we did. We made a film for the JCRS, and we went to Denver and shot it, and it won a prize. They've used it up until a year or two ago as a fundraiser. And from that, and I gave the company a terrible name. I don't know why. I called it Promotional Films. We got some orders from the, uh, the State Department and the Agricultural Department. We made a picture called Chicken of Tomorrow. <laughs> we made picture for the Ford Motor Company, and we made a picture for a local of the ILGWU. It turned out so well that I got a call from David Dubinsky, who is the head of the ILGWU, and he said he wanted a film for the 50th anniversary of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. I got hold of a wonderful writer, Morton Wishingrad, who has died since. He used to write Guiding Light. He wrote a brilliant script called With These Hands, and I got all my active friends in it, Sam Levine, Joel Wiseman, Arlene Francis, Oh, a whole bunch of all the actors that I knew. And it was nominated for an Academy Award as a feature documentary. And it was good enough to play that mental picture up there, the mm -hmm. Warner Theater on Broadway. That got me a contract at Universal. And that was 1949. I came here. I didn't get to win the Academy Award. If I had known better, I could have. I didn't do any advertising. I didn't know what the game was. What won that year was a collection of, of paintings. And anyway, being nominated was good enough. And it got me a director's contract, a seven-year director's contract with Universal, except for a few excursions outside of Universal with Paramount and with MGM, overseas with Columbia. Most of my work has been done here since 1949. And that's how I met your grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Grandpa. Now, was It Came From Outer Space your first feature? No. My first feature was what they thought was an exploitation picture, which was a lovely little film whose original title was Night Flowers, and it was about juvenile delinquents and kids on the Lower East Side of New York. I had a very young company, and we went to New York and shot it, and it turned out very well indeed. But they changed the name to Girls in the Night which I objected to, but it didn't mean anything. And it did very well. It was better than the title would imply. Who started? Harvey Lembeck. I was proud of the film. That was my first film. And then I did a, a bunch of westerns. Man from Bridger Ridge, Red Sundown, Johnny Salvo, Decision at Durango. No name on the bullet. <laughs> no name. You're right. Starring Audie Murphy. What was he like to work with? He was a very strange man. He was a very slight man, and he looked very boyish. And to think of what he did as an infantry soldier, to be the highest decorated soldier in World War II, it took a little imagination, you know. But I would not like to get into an argument with him. I saw him mad once. It was frightening because his face became pale, and I was afraid he was going to kill the guy, you know. I can see why, you know, he had that kind of temperament. Very quiet and uh, very easy to work with. Spoke mostly in monosyllables. I wouldn't call him an intellectual. But he had a strange personality that came across on the screen. It, it was a very attractive personality. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, sometimes he could be mean, and sometimes he could be so gentle and kind. 
he owned a, um, oh, what was it, a, a 210, I think, a Cessna. And he knew I was a pilot. And uh, he was just learning to fly. And I took him up a couple of times and put him under the hood and saw that he didn't bump into anybody. So he gave me a set of keys and said, anytime you want to use a plane, it's yours. That kind of a guy. I was very fond of Audie, but I would not get into an argument with him. Did you not care to make any more than, what, there's five Jack Arnold Westerns or so, maybe mm -hmm. six? Well, as a contract director, I didn't have any choice. I would finish a film, and then they would lay another script on my desk and says, this is your next assignment. You work with a writer on it, and uh, you start shooting in three, four weeks. That's the way it worked. If I didn't like the script, I could turn it down, and they'd put me on suspension. That means no pay? No pay. They'd put me on suspension, and then they'd let me suffer for a couple of weeks, and then they'd give me another script. Mm -hmm. and then I got wise, and I said, I'll do it. You know. So there were some films I did that I didn't want to do, and I tried to do the best I could with them. But those days in Hollywood are gone forever. The studio system. It had a great many wonderful things about it as far as talent was concerned, either director or actors or producers. But the business has changed tremendously. You know, it's run really by lawyers and accountants who can read a balance sheet but can't read a script. It's a different world. Did you like doing westerns? Oh, I loved westerns. I bought a ranch when I came out here after my first couple of pictures. Not only because I, I liked it, it's because my wife was pregnant during the making of It Came From Outer Space. And the opening night, she gave birth to a, a girl. And my little daughter, Susie, as she grew up, about four years old, fell in love with horses. And I was renting horses all over and then finally bought a horse for her and stabled it in Beverly Hills someplace. And it was costing me so God damn much to pay for the horse, stabling him. I said, why don't you? And we love horses. And I started to ride. And my wife started to ride. So we went out to Hidden Hills out in the valley here. And we bought six acres and a big ranch house. And we put some more money into it. And I ended up with five horses and a daughter who was invited to join the Olympic team, but suddenly discovered boys. There I was alone with my horses, and I was <laughs> I was feeding them and uh, shoveling the residue uh, <laughs> most of the time. So we finally sold it because we couldn't keep the horses exercised. There were too many of them. I had a cutting horse that I loved that I sold because I just didn't have time for it anymore. I just started to mention Ray Bradbury, and he came from outer space. One of the heads of the studio stopped me and said, hey, we got a, a Ray Bradbury story we'd like you to read. We want you to do it in 3D. He says, you can do that, can't you? I said, sure. <laughs> I'd say sure to anything, you know. <laughs> so I read the story, and I liked it. And I thought uh, Ray was a wonderful writer. Were you familiar with his works? Yes, I, I was familiar with Ray's yeah. works. But he wasn't a screenwriter. Right. He was a short story writer. And I novelist, really. well, poet, really. I was assigned a producer, Bill Allen, who was a very good producer. Together, we hired a, a man named Harry Essex. From story, he wrote the screenplay and under our supervision. And meanwhile, I was trying to figure out how to shoot 3D. Warners had made Wax Museum, the Vincent, Vincent Price, Price film. And I tried to find out from Warners how, how they made that, and they wouldn't tell me. 
So I said, the hell with them. We'll make up our own way. So I found out from some technicians I knew, and we had a wonderful cameraman that worked with me, Cliff Stein, who was a great technician and did most of the special effects. We designed a 3D system. Warner Brothers system was you have to use two cameras to get good 3D because it's one's for the left eye and one's for the right eye. The interocular distance between the two eyes is two and a half inches. So we had to have lenses close enough together to be able to move to accommodate the point of convergence and maintain the interocular distance. So what Warners did was they shot one camera straight ahead and another camera into a mirror. By turning the mirror, they control the interocular distance and the point of convergence. Then optically, they had to flip the film because it was a mirror image. I said, we can do it better than that. So what we did is we took two NC Mitchell cameras, NC standing for noiseless, which is a lie, and uh, mounted one upside down, running backwards, and put one running normally side by side with it. So then we put a plate that allowed the lenses to be close together and a plate which could be manipulated this way or that way and shot two cameras that way, one running upside down and backwards and one running forward. All we had to do was switch, turn it around and go from the yeah. end to the beginning and it would match what I shot with this camera. So I had two pieces of film that were originals original negative. No need to flip. The quality was better. I didn't have another generation, you see. Our system worked great. The picture was done, and we made it, and they did a, a typical opening night at the Pantages Theater with Army Archard and the lights mm -hmm. and everything. And what we did, we thought we'd do something spectacular. I had my crew build a scaffold around the screen. And we put styrofoam rocks, which could be sprung when we wanted to spring them, all around the, the proscenium. There's a spot in the film, if you know the film, when he runs down to see the spaceship and the door closes on him, he starts to go back and an avalanche happens. And it goes right into, I shot it, so the rocks fall right into the camera. They look like they're going to fall into your lap. Well, when that happened, we tripped the, the scaffold and actually, all the styrofoam rocks fell into the audience's laps, and you never heard—you never heard such screams in your life. Yes, they loved the film, and it got a great send-off. For days, that's what they talked about. It took off, and it became a very huge success. From there on, I was the expert on 3D. In this book we were looking at earlier, uh, "Keep Watching the Skies" by Bill Warren. Yeah, I didn't read that. Warren has. A fairly lengthy section on this film. He considers it a very, very important film. He goes on at some length as to how much Bradbury really influenced it versus how much Harry Essex did. Warren maintains that Essex basically just edited Bradbury's copy. Warren is right. What Harry Essex did was to put into screenplay form and didn't violate, I don't think, Bradbury's intention in making a movie. I think it was essentially Bradbury's story, but the screenplay was by Harry Essex. And I don't think Harry Essex changed anything unless he had to because of the mechanics of making a film. 
Did Bradbury comment to you afterwards how he yes. felt about it? Yes. After the opening at the Pantages, Ray Bradbury was there. And I saw him. I said, Ray, how'd you like the film? I said, it's about 85% there. I said, well, thank Ray. I think that's from coming from an author. I think 85% is a compliment. Usually they say 25. So I felt that we succeeded. Your next film was The Glass Web, right? No, I think the next film was The Creature from the Black Lagoon. That, again, was done by the same team, uh, uh, Bill Allen as producer and myself as director. I must tell you that all the boys who are now the hottest guys in town, like Steve Spielberg and George Lucas and uh, John Landis, all of them were weaned on my film. As kids, they saw my And John and I are working on a Conan Doyle film, The Lost World. Steve and I are getting together next week to do something together. The creature was fun to make because it, it gave me a lot of problems to solve. The creature itself, the creature from the Black Lagoon, the Gill Man, is regarded by uh, a good many people as one of the great classic fantasy figures, along with Frankenstein, Dracula, the werewolf. Mm -hmm. And there has been controversy over all these years as to who really conceived and designed that figure. Could you give us the insight? Me. We sat around, Alan, myself, Jack Keevan, who was in the makeup department, saying to ourselves, well, what the hell is this guy going to look like? And on my wall, I don't have it here, but when I was nominated for the Academy Award, they gave me a plaque with the figure of the Oscar, you know. And I'm sitting in my chair, and we're arguing what the hell the Gill Man should look like. And I'm staring at the wall, and I'm looking at the picture, and I'm looking at the figure of the Oscar. And I said, fellas, I've got it. Look at him. Put a fish head on him. Put scales on him. Put webbed fingers. Long webbed toes, like flippers. And we've got it. That's the Gill Man. So Jack Keevan, who was the man who made it, and he designed the, you know, he had to make the substance that would hold up, and, of course, we tested a lot of things, and a lot of things looked like long winter underwear, you know. But finally, he, he got a compound of whatever he did, because I didn't ask him what the compound was made of. Out came, well, there's the head, and out came the gill man. The jaw was movable, and the gills moved, and they were connected. All he had to do was that. The problem was to get someone in the soup and swim so we went to Florida, and we went to Silver Springs where they do the big water show. And I met a, a man, a kid then, called Rico Browning, who was a, a fantastic man in the water, and who could hold his breath underwater for almost five minutes. So I hired him on the spot, and we flew him back here, and we made a body mold so they could make the suit. They had to fit him like it was part of his skin. Also, there's no room in the suit to put an air tank. So what we had to do was that the head came on separately. That portion slipped on and fitted into the scales on the shoulder. And he had a ridge in the back, and of course that hid the zipper. <laughs> that zippered him up in the suit. But when we were shooting scenes with him, he would play the scene as long as his breath held out, and then he would give us a signal, and we had a safety man off camera. 
with a air hose. And he swam over to him, and he jammed the hose into the mouth of the mask and into his own mouth. And he would take a few big, deep breaths of air, take a deep one, and then come swim back into the scene. We used two aeroflexes, and there we used the mirror system because there was no way of mounting the two aeroflexes to run the way we had the Mitchells. But some of the most exciting stuff in the picture are the underwater sequences. And I shot the swimming sequence, which was, I think, very good, where she decides to go for a swim, and they haven't discovered that there's a gill man alive. They found a fossil, but they didn't know about the gill this man. Is the famous sequence of Julie Adams and the White Julie Adam in the White Bathing yes, Suit. Yeah. I waited till high noon for that, so I had her backlit. So you had the shimmering white of the top of the water, and her shot in silhouette and brought him up. Of course, we had lights on him. He was curious. He didn't know what this apparition was. And he got on his back and swam with her. Then when she stops, he goes to touch her. And it was a very exciting thing to shoot, a very exciting thing, I think, after we saw it on film. It looked very good. And I thought that was one of the highlights of the picture. For me, it was. Where was that shot? There was two places we shot in Florida. Silver Springs... And one other place, I'll think of the name of the other place in a minute, that had clear water and the blowing grass, the, the grass and, and the, the kind of underwater foliage that he could hide behind and the shelves of, of rocks. Is that a natural freshwater area? Yeah. Not salt water? No, fresh. There were fish in it, but there were freshwater fish. fish. Now, I understand there were two actors, actually. Browning, Rico, is not a terribly tall man. I think he was about five nine and a half, maybe five ten. But I wanted him a big, tall man. I wanted a seven-foot man. So I got a seven-foot stuntman and made a suit for him. And he played the gill man above water. Rico was underwater. All the above water scenes were filmed out here. Yes, on the back lot. The lake back there was the lagoon. They've screwed up the back lot to accommodate the tours. It's not what it used to be. But when uh, they put a submarine or something in there, now I'm put a bridge so the uh, trams can go over it and uh, kill the lake. But before that happened, that was under the old Universal. That was a very nice lake which we jungled up. You thought you were in the Amazon. And the Black Lagoon was there, and on the way it was there. I make storyboards on everything. Unless they change their mind, you won't make it. I had started my storyboard on it. Where's page one? Anyhow, you can tell the way I work. Now, the, these fish, of course, in 3D would be out, out in the audience. This one would be. Then I would pan down to a rock, and I would get in closer, and that his head would stick out into the audience. Then I'd have him swim out, see frightened fish getting out of his way, see him coming in the distance. And as his head came right close to us, a hand, the gill man's hand, came up and grabbed him and pulled him down. And then I'd start my titles. That was the way I would begin. NBC is interested in it. So whether I make it for television or make it for theaters, it might be made again. Who was the writer of the screenplay? Essex again. And uh, Arthur Ross. I mean, uh, of this new version. Nigel Neal. 
Yeah, I had John Davison and uh, John Landis and uh, myself. We pooled our talents together. We called it The Creature from the Black Lagoon 2. Then someone got the bright idea up on the tower to do Jaws 3D. And they said, we don't want to do two 3D pictures. We just want to do one. And I said, we don't have to do it in 3D. It's just as good flat. In many theaters, it never played 3D. Many theaters, it played flat. To date, I haven't convinced them. I haven't given up. What about the two sequels that were made? I made the second sequel, Revenge of the Creature. I refused to make the third. I didn't like the script. And I did all I could do with the creature in the first two. And all I would be doing is repeating myself. My assistant director, I recommended him to direct it and let him be a director. That gave him a chance to do it. He did, and it didn't turn out too good. And we already milked it for all yes. it was worth anyway. How do you feel about the creature? I don't mean as a as the physical design, but your concept of this being. The concept of this being from the very beginning, for me, because I called him Beastie. The whole cast called him Beastie. We loved him. I felt I want to make a sympathetic character. Here is a man who is driven. I say man. Here was evolution that was stopped in its tracks. He didn't come out of the water and developed in the water. He was the last of his kind. What gave birth to the idea was the finding of the coelacanth off Madagascar. We said, well, let's say a lungfish, a man who didn't develop and, and uh, come out of the water. Say so he developed in the water. And that was the genesis of the Gill Man. But I didn't want to make a monster out of him. He was primeval. But he was violent only because his space was invaded. Because he was attacked. He became violent only because there was violence done on him. Which is a human reaction. And all of us, no matter how bizarre, bizarre things happen... We're capable of any kind of violence, and God knows history will show you what man can do. And I want the audience to sympathize with him and to like him and understand him, knew where he came from. And the proof of the pudding to me was, one day I go to the theater to see Seven Year Rich with Marilyn Monroe, and there's a sequence where Tom Yule, it starts on a marquee, and it says, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And it pans down, and there comes Tommy Yule and, and Marlon Monroe out of the theater. And she says, I love that film. And I felt so sorry for the creature. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I won my point. Those films were a great commercial success, too, weren't great. they? Great. They saved the studio. Yeah. The studio, I'm not bragging, I'm just telling you what happened. The studio, you know, 53 or 4, whenever this, 53 was the first one, I think. That was the beginning of the golden age of television. Everybody was enamored with a little black set, and nobody was going to the theater. They were giving away dishes, cars, shoes, anything to get people into the theater. And Universal was going bankrupt until we started making these science fiction films that brought them back into the theater and made this company healthy again. You did a good many of these science fiction films. Yes, I, I did. Think the other one that is most famous and most remembered and considered most important was The Incredible Shrinking Man. I don't agree with him. When I got that script, which was written by uh, a very good friend of mine. It would have been Matheson. Matheson. And his novel, Richard did the screenplay. 
I had a disagreement with Richard. Richard's novel, if you read the novel, is in flashback, and I refused to make the film in flashback. I said, every time you come to a dramatic thing and build up something, you're going to break the audience's attention and go back to something else. And now uh, you have to grab your audience and bring them back to where you left them, and the whole dramatic line of the story is killed. This has to be told from page one. It's got to be told right in sequence. So Richard Allen Simmons came in and took no credit and took out the flashbacks, and we did it as a straight drama, which I think is the correct way to do it. But I love Richard. Richard's a dear friend. But that was the one disagreement we had. I didn't and want to do flashbacks. After it was all done, did he give you an 85% also? No. As a matter of fact, he uh, still thinks. He did think until about two years ago, until he came to a science fiction uh, convention in San Francisco, I think it was. And he saw the shrinking man with his son, who was then an adult, yes. and was beginning to write, and he's a very good writer now. And his son loved it and convinced him that what I did was correct. And from then on, he loves it. We're dear friends. We were neighbors. He had a house in Hidden Hills, too. But it gave me a lot of big problems. From a, a technical viewpoint? From a technical and special effects. For instance, I had to shrink the man who was six, who, by the way, was played by one of the best actors I've ever worked with, who, why he never became a star, I'll never know, whose name was Grant Williams. He wasn't the image of the leading man that was popular in those days, in the 50s, of the dark, tall, handsome, Rock Hudson-type fellas. He was blonde and blue-eyed, and wasn't the image that they were buying, you know. Mm -hmm. But who did a fabulous job. He was on the screen by himself, nothing else, nothing to play to except what I was telling him, because I couldn't get the spiders his size, or I couldn't get the cats his size. And he was six foot one or two, big tall guy. So what I had to do was I had to shoot all the animal stuff first. The cat trying to get into the dollhouse, chasing him across the floor. I had to do all the stuff in the cellar, the spider coming off the box. I had to learn how to direct not only cats, but spiders. And let me tell you, that's a job. <laughs> how many takes does it need with a spider? The spider, I found a quick way to do it. The cats gave me the most trouble. The spider, I looked at the spiders, and we made a test with the domestic spiders. Now, the domestic spiders are about, oh, maybe one or three inches in diameter. We couldn't hold, get enough exposure on them to hold the nose sharp and the tail sharp. So this animal man said, uh, I can get you big spiders from Panama. They're about eight or ten inches across. Wow. I said, well, get 60 of them and fly them up here. So then I, we built to the spider a replica of the portions of the cellar that he works in. We had a spider web. We took the license that it was a spider that climbs spider webs. Tarantulas don't make webs but we didn't tell anybody. We had a big ball of string, a giant ball of string. We had a giant pair of scissors and a giant cake, which is why he, he went up there to get food. Now I said, how do I direct a spider? How do I make him come down that thing, and how do I make him go across the ledge instead of going the other way? One of the prop men said, why don't you use air? I said, fine. Get three or four tubes of air, air bottles, and give me a little 
thing that I can squeeze. So if we wanted the spider to come down, we'd get up there and give him a of air. And to get away from it, he'd start Just climbing down. Yeah. Try to yeah. get away from the oh. blast of air, see. And if he stopped, we'd give him another blast. Now, if he came down here <laughs> and went that way, but I wanted him to come this way. Off camera, I had another guy give him a little spritz. And he'd come <laughs> this way. And that's how I directed the spider. How many, how many of the 60 spiders did you wind up using? We killed all of them. Oh. We had to, not purposely, we had to light to such a high key to keep everything in focus that we figuratively cooked them. Anyway, I got around the spider easily. The cats were another story. And I love cats. I have cats. But I know cat will only do what it wants to do, not what you want to do. So once they get wise to what you're doing, they won't do it. So the animal trainer had 25 cats, long-haired, red cats. You couldn't tell one from the other. So as soon as one got wise, we'd throw them out and put another one in, you see. And what I would do, for instance, if a shot of the cat running into the house because she leaves the door open to get a shopping list that she forgot to take, she left the cat out because she was afraid the cat might go after him, and he's living in the dollhouse. And he's now about six inches tall. To get the cat to smell around the dollhouse, to smell him, I took baby food and smeared it around, you see, where I wanted him to go. So the cat went and smeared and kept smelling around. And then I hid the food in the dollhouse. So he saw it in there and wanted to get it. So he pushed the, the door, not the door, the the back, the oh, open the back end of the dollhouse was against the wall. Oh, right, that's right. Away right. from yeah, the right. wall so he can get in, you know. In by pushing it yeah, in. the opening of the door I did against a process screen where I had a huge close-up of the face. So when he opens the door, you got that snarling cat, you know, but that was done with process. And where he gets hooked by the cat who is forced his way in the back, we had a fake paw. And we had him pre-scratched and everything, but he was facing the camera, and not until he turned around did you see it. That was after the cat did that. So all the cat stuff was done before I shot a photo film with Grant Williams. What I had to do was cut the sequences wherever he acted with the cat or the spider, the killing of the spider, the chase of the cat, playing with him like he did as all cats do, if you know cats and watch cats catch a mouse, you know how they play with them. They knock them down and then pretend not to look. They look away, and they look this way, and the cat makes, the mouse makes a move, and boom, they're on top of them. They play with it, you know, till they kill them. So to get that, I had the trainer have a little bird. I wouldn't let the cat get the bird. ASPCA, I didn't, I promise you. But we teased the cat with it so that he would make swipes at the bird and put him down and we matted that out when we put in Grant Williams. To make a long story short, what I had to do was I cut the sequences with the animals and the spider and timed it on a, on, on a moviola and did it with a metronome. I gave a count and I would use the metronome on every count I would tell Grant we would go over the scene and I would tell Grant what was happening. You're running out of the, the dollhouse and hiding behind the leg of the chair. You see the cat come around, and he's smelling at the door. You take that moment to run away, except the cat turns and sees you running and chases you and knocks you down. 
all those actions were done on accounts. Whatever number it was, he knew what the cat was doing. And that's why he was such a wonderful actor, because he only acted to me. And I was just standing up, metronome going, and I would yell, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And, and that was the way he acted. And I put it together, and there it is. The cat's there, and so is he, you know? Who so, was the film editor who did that? Well, I had to shoot it. And uh, all the film editor had to do was to put it together. Well, I had a very good film editor. I don't remember his name at the moment. Well, what we did when he got the two pieces of film, he put it together and we made another negative, a composite negative of the two films, but they had to be precise mathematically so it wouldn't jump, you know. So I had fun. The greatest fun I had is that he is down in the cellar. He is now about an inch tall. He is living in a matchbox which he saw when he climbed out of the box. He saw in the distance a water heater that was dripping water. And under the water heater was a, one of those matchboxes. So he runs over to the matchbox and to use as a shelter. And the water, because he was thirsty, to catch some water to drink. Now my problem was, how do I make a drop look like one inch to a six-foot man? So I'm standing on the stage, which is right back here, stage 12, where we had the big cellar and the water heater and the drops dropping. Later, the drops dropping, until I found out how to do it. I said, what are we going to do for drops? And I talked to everyone of my crew, and I said, well, let's go up there with a hose and a, a faucet and turn it on, turn it off, and see what happens. Well, what happens was the water spreads all over the place and doesn't stay. It's nothing. I found when I was a kid in my father's drawer something made of rubber. And I didn't know what it was, <laughs> but I took it and filled it with water. And I tied, tied the end, and I had a lovely bomb. So I was living in New York, and I went up to the roof, and whenever I saw someone go by, I'd drop it. And it would fall and held it, a, a kind of tear shape. And boom, it hit and splatter and disappear, you know. And I said, that's wonderful. So I had fun until my father caught me. Then I remembered it, and I said, guys, one of you guys, give me a condom. So the guys look at me like I'm crazy. And uh, I said, come on now, guys. One of you guys have got a condom. Give them to me. One. Just give me one. So one guy sheepishly took a condom and gave it to me. I said, fill it with water. Tie the end up, go up there and drop it. So he went up there and he dropped it, and there was a perfect tear shape, right in proportion to what it should be, it fell splattered just like a drop would. So I ordered a hundred drops. We put a treadmill, and we rolled the treadmill to get the drops going, you know. In the story, and it increases, the drops increase, and then the pipe breaks, and we had a, a big tank up there, and then we let all the water, that's when the cellar floods. The picture is finished, and the boss, bosses are very happy, and I, Jim Pratt, who was then head of production, called me into his office, and he said, you did a good job. The pictures are, one. Well, you did a good job. It's a good picture, but we're puzzled by one item here. <laughs> I said, what's that? He says, what, what's a 100 gross of condoms? I said, Jim, you know how hard this picture was? We had a party. At the end of that picture, as at the end of the novel, mm -hmm. in the novel, it's a long time since I read it, but as I recall, 
he reemerges into a sort of subatomic universe as if everything is going to recycle over again. Uh, the film does not end with that, as no, I recall. I wrote the end. What is your version of the ending, and what does it mean? It means exactly what it says. As against the ending of the book, which takes him into a strange small world, I didn't like that ending. What it says in this book, and says it better than I can say it, in a moment of apolytic intensity, Carrie spears the spider with a pin, and like Siegfried, is bathed in the monster's vital fluids. Scott Carey, too, is changed by this horrific baptism. He arises from his ordeal no longer hating the monster, no longer desiring food. Beyond attachment and desire, he steps through a basement grating, formerly too small for him, into the garden outside. As he gazes upward at the stars, his internal monologue reflects on his enlightenment, his final liberation. I was continuing to shrink, to become what? The infinitesimal? What was I? Still a human being? Or was I the man of the future? If there were other bursts of radiation, other clouds drifting across seas and continents, would other beings follow me into this vast new world? So close, the infinitesimal and the infinite. But I suddenly knew they were really the two ends of the same concept, the unbelievably small and the unbelievable vast. Eventually they meet, like closing of a gigantic circle. I looked up, as if somehow I would grasp the heavens, the universe, worlds without number, God's silver tapestry spread across the night. And in that moment I knew the answer to the riddle of the infinite. I had thought in terms of man's own limited dimension. I had presumed upon nature that existence begins and ends is man's conception, not nature's. And I felt my body dwindling, melting, becoming nothing. My fears melted away, and in their place came acceptance. All this vast majesty of creation, it had to mean something. And then I meant something, too. Yes, smaller than the smallest, I meant something, too. To God, there is no zero. I still exist. And that's the way the picture ends. It's like when he climbed the hill and could get through the grate that he couldn't get through before. And he looks up and we show the the heavens with its infinite worlds, the, the mysterious creation, that it needed that kind of metaphysical ending to this picture. And I had a great argument with the studio. Believe me, they didn't want that ending. What did they want? They wanted him to grow back. The Incredible Shrinking Woman. That's well, right. Well, what about The Incredible Shrinking Woman? It's an obvious question that we must address. Well, if you want to make me sick, ask me. They told me they were making The Incredible Shrinking Woman. John was going to make it first. Landis. John gave me the script to read, and I said, John, don't do it. First place, it's not a comedy. It's not a vehicle for a comedy. You can make jokes with it, but it's not going to come off, believe me. And uh, he says, well, I'm going to rewrite the script. I said, okay, I, I wish you the best of luck. Then he finally decided not to do it. And another director did it. And I thought it was awful. It had no reason or rhyme except for the tricks. Although I think Lily Tomlin is a great talent, I don't think this is the vehicle for her. And the script wasn't good at all. because I read that one, too. But they didn't ask me, so I never ventured an opinion except to John. Since they didn't ask me, I wouldn't tell them. 
go make it. They didn't ask me about Jaws 3D either. And I tried to help them. That I really did. But they wouldn't um, listen to me, so... Did you ever discuss it with Matheson? Oh, he hates it. The success of the, the Incredible Shrinking Man. When it became so successful, they asked him to write a, a sequel. So he wrote The Incredible Shrinking Woman, a different script, in which she duplicates what he went through and begins to shrink. And she goes off to find him. And it was a journey of her trying to find him and meeting up and conquering all the obstacles in the way. Now that sounds as if it has real potential. It has. It was a melodrama. It was a good melodrama, but they then they decided not to do it. He had written a script, but it wasn't the same script that they shot. Well, it wasn't a comedy. The other wasn't uh -huh. a comedy either, except Lily Tomlin played it, you know. The Incredible Shrinking Man, they offered it to you. They said, here, take it, or did you have some kind of offer on that? I read the book. And I thought it would make a hell of a movie. I brought it to their attention, and I brought it to the attention of Bill Allen, my producer, that I worked all my science fiction films with. We sold them on that idea, and we started to do the picture. At this point, you were no longer quite the contract director. With I was still a contractor director, but I had more clout because I had made some film that made money. If my films hadn't made money, I wouldn't have any clout. How did Tarantula come about? Same way. I wrote it. They wanted a, an, a, a science fiction exploitation film. I sat down and wrote a story called Tarantula. I think on two pages. And I gave it to Jim Pratt and said, if you want one, here's one. I just wrote one. He says, you got it. Make it. But those were those days. Yeah. You can't do it today. You never made another science fiction movie after, what, The Space Children? Was that the last? I think Space Children was the last one. I did that at Paramount. After the success of my science fiction films, there was a lot of imitation, like The Amazing Man or Colossal, colossal Man. Or The Colossal Beast, or, yes. And, <laughs> and then the Japanese got into the act with Godzilla, and they were making these very cheap, pointless films. I'm very proud of my films because all of them have something to say. There is, I wouldn't say a message, but there is content to my films. The first film that came from outer space, the context that I tried to tell in the film is that all of us, the veneer of civilization is so thin on us that we hate anything that's different than us. And uh, you can prove that any day. The Jews against the Arabs, the black against the white, you know. And I did it in a little scene where he steps on a spider because the spider's ugly to him, you know, and he kills him. So, no matter what film you named that I did, it had something to say. The films that were made by AIP and, and Godzilla were just special effects films to scare you or to do whatever they did, and they killed making any class of science fiction films because the market was surfeited with them. But that period came to an end, and Universal wasn't doing anymore, and then I was assigned to A Pictures at that time. And then I began doing pictures with Lana Turner and Jeff Chandler and people that, like that. Since, unfortunately, Creature from the Black Lagoon 2 is on the shelf, Yes. what will you be doing now? Well, at the moment, John Landis, myself, and a man I consider a genius, Albert Whitlock, who is the greatest mat maker in the world, we have devised a way of making a big, wide adventure with scope with mats and blue screen and special effects. 
and that we have a script, a very good script, of Conan Doyle's Lost World. And uh, we're in the midst, uh, since they don't want to do it here, we're out in the open market, and uh, we got uh, appointments with a lot of people. This will be at least the third version of that. Yes, the first version was 1925. There was one made in 1965 at Fox. At this point, there's a break in the interview, most likely because we thought the interview was over. But the discussion went on. Someone asked a question about 3D and its future in the movies. As Jack Arnold began to answer, I slipped a new tape into the machine and pressed record. 3D depended on a conscientious projectionist to line the film up and the projectors up to the millimeter. If that wasn't done, the film would tear your eyes out. And especially, and I tried to get the people who made those damn glasses, which were red and green, and which cut around 50% of the light out. And you had to use silver screen to get more light. So the theaters had to put in silver screen if they wanted to show it, to see it. But Unfortunately, when I got onto the boondocks and didn't get away from big theaters where we had our people go up and line up the projectors and get them lined up perfectly and in sync, you'd get good 3D because we were showing two projectors in sync. That's what killed it the first time because too many people got headaches and the projectionists were lazy. They didn't do their job or didn't know how to do their job in the small theaters in the small towns. Or even the smaller theaters in big towns. You know, we couldn't send technicians all over the country. The problem today with 3D, and why it's going to be and is short-lived, is that you cannot get real good 3D taking it with a single camera and showing it on a single projector. Because most theaters today, there are only 300 theaters in the country that still have two projectors. You know, the rest of them are all single projectors, and the film, the whole program is put on a platter. And the projectionist pushes a button, and the program starts, and if he's conscientious, he looks out to see if it's in focus. If he's not, he just goes to the next little theater and pushes the button, and the show goes on. But you can't show 3D that way. They did. Jaws 3D was shown that way, and all the other bad films that were made were shown that way on uh, one strip. And actually, what you're projecting, it's over and under, two pictures over and under. The lenses aren't that good. They're not made by Bosch and Lam or any professional lens makers. They were homemade jobs. <laughs> the uh, light didn't have sufficient light. You're projecting in a theater a 16-millimeter print. Two pictures into one, it becomes 16-millimeter. We four, this gang, Richie and Larry and Pat and I, went to see Treasure of the Four Crowns together. The projection was so awful, Richie went up to talk to the theater manager, right? They told me the guy had left and forget it, you know. Well, that's, you know, that's you should get your money back and walk out and say, I'll never come back again. What I tried to get those glass makers, those fellas to make, to make clip-ons that you can put on your own glasses and flip them down and you wouldn't have the bother... I have been yearning for those clip-ons for 30 years. And it's easy to make. No one would listen to me. That was my plan. When we were going to do Neil's version, we were going to be sure that we had clip-ons to give to people who wore glasses. You know, and then they would have just yeah. just flip them down. That's all. 
then at least we could have gotten decent 3D. And we were working at that time, I was working with with uh, the camera they're all using now. Your, uh, your version of uh, The Lost World, do you have a script or a screenwriter chosen? It was written, rewritten by three writers. One writer, then another, and then another. Finally, I got a version that I liked. It's a very good script. It's a period piece, 1910, and Professor Challenger. Uh, I wanted Albert Finney to play Challenger. He'd be wonderful. That's who we're going to try to get. No, I wouldn't make it in 3D. There is a famous... I've never seen the 1925 version complete, but there is a famous still of that scene with a plesiosaur raising its neck out of the Thames. I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it, but we're not going to do that. What we're doing is that we come back to Albert Hall, and we brought managed to bring back an egg of a pterodactyl, except that it hatches. And when we open the box, here comes out the pterodactyl and starts flying all over Albert Hall and gets loose through an open window. You think 1985 maybe for a release? I was hoping 1984. That depends on what our meetings next week will show. It's going to take a long preparation to, to get everything done. We're going to do all our mat shots first, using doubles in wardrobe. Then when we get the cast, there are a lot of exciting scenes in it. There was another thing about your 50s work. There's a story that you directed the closing sequence of This Island Earth. Is that true? Can you tell Part us about of it. that? Yeah, I don't know how it got out, but they were in trouble with it. And I was then working on A Pictures, and Bill produced it. And he said, would you help me? This, this whole sequence is room. Not right. So I reshot it and uh, put a little atmosphere in it. This is the final sequence on the planet Metaluna. Metaluna, yeah. In fact, we saw that film, a private screening about a year and a half ago, and I thought that was the best part of it, and I didn't know that you were involved. I didn't take credit, or I didn't even want anyone to know. You directed The Mouse That Roared, which I guess is probably your best-known A picture. Yes, it is, and it's one of my favorite pictures. Oh, it's a wonderful movie. Yeah. How was working with Sellers, Peter Sellers? Wonderful in a sense, horrible in another sense. Peter is probably was the greatest improvisational actor I'd ever worked with. Well, I don't think anybody's ever worked with. Uh, he has a tremendous sense of humor, and he's so inventive. But the only problem is, the first take is the best take. And after that, it starts to get, goes downhill, until it becomes gibberish to him. But if you catch him on the first take, you've got a brilliant performance. And that was my problem with him. He's very temperamental, and he wasn't as bad as he turned out later. With Blake, Blake almost had uh, a heart attack with him doing Clouseau. There was always something strange about Peter. Maybe that's why he was so talented, but he wasn't very easy to work with. He'd blow up for nothing, you know. My job was trying to keep him down and, and try to get it on the first take. The, my only big problem on The Mouse That Roared was that they made me use Gene Seberg. Now, I wouldn't have said made me use Seberg, a few years later, but at that time she had never done anything except two pictures without a preminger, Bonjour Tristesse and Joan of Arc. And the way he got her to act was he found her in some high school someplace and made her play Joan of Arc. Well, she was completely inexperienced. 
And the only way he got her to act was to he literally browbeat her, you know, until she was in tears. Then he turned the camera, you know, and uh, yelled and screamed and played the two-ton, you know. He was the shaven-headed general. And she was waiting for me to do that, and I don't yell at anybody. She was doing some things, and every time we'd get to a take with Peter Sellers, she'd mouse up something, so it got to be take 20 when I had to stop, you know. And I'd say, look, we'll do it tomorrow. Let's go, and we'll do something else now. Because Peter wasn't making any sense by that time. And he was looking at me like he was going to kill me anyway. How long did it take to make that picture? Seven weeks. And how long was it supposed to? Seven weeks. It sounds like a miracle, then, if you had to deal with this and you still brought it in on schedule. Yeah, $425,000. Oh, you can make a commercial yeah. for that. That's right. Yeah. But that was in 1958. When the hell was it? 58. Well, the yeah. dollar wasn't the same. I mean, if you did it today, it would be maybe two or three million. Richard Carlson was in quite a few of your movies. One of my favorite actors. If you could give me cliff notes on Richard Carlson, what he was like to work with, and how you felt about him. I really loved him. He was a fine man. He was a fine actor. And what I demand of actors, especially in, in movies of imagination, stories of imagination, where the premise is bizarre, I want an actor who can make me believe it, can suspend disbelief. And Richard could do that. Richard could play it and believe it and make it true, make it the truth. And he was a pleasure to work with, and there wasn't anything I could ask of him that he wouldn't do. And I loved him dearly. Same with all of the cast. Julie um, Adams was a wonderful girl. She is a wonderful. She's not longer a girl, but she's a wonderful lady. I wanted you to put your Western hat back on and be the Western director again. And I wanted to see what you felt was responsible for the problems that the Western film is having, being an, a non-existent entity just about at this point. I really don't know. As I was an aficionado of science fiction films, I was aficionado of Westerns. It were staples. I don't know why suddenly they become an anathema. I wonder myself. I don't know. I'm essentially a storyteller. Any good director is a storyteller. I tell you a story. I get involved in the stories I tell. The romantic West of the Westerns appealed to me as a romantic and the ones that I made, I felt were good. I used Grant Williams, and one of them anyway, as a, a villain. And he was a wonderful villain. A quiet, gentle villain. And was different than an ordinary villain that you will see in most Westerns. And I tried to get that kind of quality even in um, Artie Murphy oh, yeah. films, you know. It wasn't one of Murphy's films that Grant was the villain. I just tried to tell the story the best I could, with as much imagination as I could. And why we're not making Westerns today, I don't know. Maybe we've been surfeited with them, with so many, that, you know, they're repeating themselves. Although I must tell you, I did see the film that everybody seemed to hate, Heaven's Gate, Gate and I liked it in the, the, the uncut version. version. And that's the way it should have been screened. Yeah. They were afraid of it. Why, I don't know. They shouldn't have been, because it was done beautifully. But it didn't help bring the Westerns back. 
I don't know. Someday I think someone will make a Western and uh, it'll be accepted. I can't tell you why they're not accepted. They used to be a staple. Hollywood was made on Westerns. And up until what? How many years ago? Five, ten? About ten years ago, suddenly no one would make a Western. I made a couple of modern Westerns. They weren't really Westerns. All I have to do is get good scripts and good directors and good stories. The powers that be say, no, nobody will go and see a Western. I don't know who's going to change the pattern. Unfortunately, Camino didn't because he spent so much money and went so far over budget and came in with such a long film and the bad publicity that was engendered by all that. If there was any spark of making a Western, that certainly killed it. Well, one last question. Yes, sir. Did you really direct Gilligan's Island? Yes, I did. I not only directed it, I produced it. I, at one point in my career, nothing was happening. And CBS offered me a great deal of money to become a troubleshooter. So I signed with them for about a year at a tremendous amount of money. They would send me to series or something that were in trouble. And Gilligan's Island was in trouble. And they said, go over and see what you can do with it. So I watched a couple of them and went over them, and I said, this is a kid's show. I compare it with the old two-reelers that they used to make in the silent days, the Buster Keatons and the and not as good as the Charlie Chaplins, of course, but the genre of those two-reel comedies that used to be made. And they have to be peopled with sight gags, not joke gags. So I tried to change the show into more sight gags and take advantage of the slapstick comedy. And the kids loved it. As a matter of fact, it's the one show. There's not a show that's been played as much on television as Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's Island's on twice a day in most cities. And it's gone way past where I get any residuals or any of the actors get residuals because it's played hundreds of thousands of times. So someone must like it. And it's the kids. And that's what it was made for. I said, you're not making anything for the, for the intelligentsia. Yeah. You're making entertainment for kids. And it's good, clean entertainment for kids. And the kids will love it. And that's what I tried to do with it. You've been listening to an interview recorded around 1980 with director Jack Arnold. My co-interviewers were Richard A. Lupoff and Lawrence Davidson. You can find many of Jack Arnold's films to rent via Apple TV or Amazon though of course not in 3D. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>